How are we doing today? If you have a Bible, you want to get to John 17. That's where we're going to be hanging out. I'm going to cover the entire chapter of John 17 today. Let's uh, stop real quick and, and pray. Pray for our time and we'll pray for our kids as they go and we pray and counter the Lord. Let's, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have to, to really dive into your word. And our kids, as they're headed back to hear the gospel, um, I pray for them that you would soften their hearts, that you would draw their affections, that you would teach them. You'd be with our teachers, that you would fill them with your spirit. And God, for our time in here, God, apart from your spirit, um, we're wasting our time. Draw us in. Show us how glorious and how beautiful you are. And uh, use the heart that we see in John 17 to give us a model for what our hearts should look like. Um, So God, come. As we know you're here in Christ's name. Amen. So I wonder what would happen if we would lay you on a table, um, cut your chest open, and begin to examine your heart. Now, I probably couldn't tell anything different from one to the other, but an expert could probably begin to see um, if arteries are working well, if valves are working well, um, if there's anything artificial, if there's anything that shouldn't be there, or um, uh, missing, or uh, if your heart is physically in a certain type of stressful condition or a good condition, um, I wonder what it would, what would it look like? What would the results be physically? Now, we could look at, like, physical activity, right? We could look at your life, and we could look at, you know, like, what maybe stresses you out or what doesn't stress you out, or, or if you have a hard time breathing or not, or, and we can begin to analyze maybe what's going on inside, right? I mean, that's the alternative to just... I think we're going to need to cut you open and see how you're doing. Do doctors do that? Like, I don't know if your heart's bad or not. Let's just cut you open and let's see. And if not, we'll just close it up and we'll be good. No. Um, they look for some warning signs, right? Now, we could take that spiritually speaking and begin to ask the question, what's the spiritual condition of our heart? And we couldn't necessarily cut it open and, and begin to analyze it like that, but we can also look at our lives and begin to see patterns and behaviors and activities that would point to what's going on inside of us. Um, because all of us, maybe even on some level, don't fully know what's going on here. Now, personally, I know more what's going on here than anybody else, and you know more what's going on inside of you than anybody else, but I think there's even a level to which we're still trying to figure out, like, what's, like, what's going on in here? What's God doing in here in the midst of, of everything? I wonder what it would look like if we took the same autopsy on Jesus. Um, the awesome thing is John 17 is really that, um, It's a picture where the heart of Christ is exposed. Um, So John 17, many of you are familiar with, is the longest exposition in the scriptures of Jesus praying. So for 26 verses, we have Jesus pouring out his heart to his fathers. To his fathers. I said fathers. Father. Sorry. Um, He's pouring out his heart to his father. 
Now, for the past several weeks, we've been examining um, the Red Letter Discourse 13 through 17. We've been in all of John for 34 sermons now, I believe it is. And in the past several weeks, which has really encompassed a couple hours, it's the final moments of Christ's life. So for the past several weeks, he's been in a room in a second story of a house with his closest guys, the disciples, the 12 of them are there. He's been pouring out teaching, giving them anchors to hold on to because things have been really confusing for him. Uh, for, not for Jesus, for the disciples. Things, they're trying to navigate what's going on. What is Jesus talking about about him dying? What is Jesus talking about about he's going to leave? And we come to John 17, and if you look at the first verse, look at what it says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So Jesus had just, this is on the end, the very end of all that's happened in 13 through 16, and he stops. So here's the setting. They're in this room. He stops. The disciples are all around him, and he engages in the prayer that we're about to walk through. Okay? Which is going to encompass three things. It's going to encompass his own heart and affections for his father, his heart and affections for the disciples. Have you ever talked to, have you ever talked to someone about someone while they watched you talk about them? Or been on the, on, the, on the other side of it? Like, you know, like as a kid growing up, you know, you're, you'd listen to your parents have conversations with people about you. And you'd kind of be like, oh, I wonder what he's, he's going to say. Oh, I didn't know he felt, I didn't know he felt that way. Like, how do you tell me that, right? So Jesus is praying to God the Father about his disciples who are an audience to it. And I wonder how that dynamic plays out in their own minds. We'll see in a minute. And then the last one is he prays for us. He prays for us. Now, I think that, one of the, that prayer is one of the most powerful tools at exposing a heart. Because when you pray, there's a sense of, God's design is that there's a sense of rawness. Okay? When, when I go to God, whether I'm angry, whether I'm excited, whether I'm um, fearful, like those are things that, that are voiced to God. And we begin to see a raw sense, even of Jesus, a rawness a vulnerability before his father. So here we go, 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, from the very beginning, these first five verses are, is Jesus focusing in on his own relationship with the Father. So he's interacting interpersonally between himself and the Father. And there's an interesting statement that I want to draw your attention to because it's the first time it appears. It says, look at the beginning of the red letters of verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Why is that odd? Because all the way up until this time, Jesus has said over and over and over again, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Okay. The authorities, the religious leaders, his oppressors would come to attack him, reveal yourself if you say this is who you, who you are, and he'd come back and say, the hour's not, my, not here. It's not my time. The disciples would want some answers, and he'd say, the hour's not yet come. 
Okay? And here he comes to this point. He says, Father. All right, here we go. What is he saying? He's saying, the crucifixion. The time for me to put sin to death on the cross. Up to this point, it just been this anticipation. Right? I had somebody pose this question to me this past week about at what point did Jesus know really what he was supposed to do? And we could argue all over the place, like, he gave up his rights and what was going on in his mind. Is he divine? Is he human? Like, at what point did he know he was the son of God? And at what point did he know I'm going to the cross? Was it like right when he comes out of the, uh, you know, right when he's born on earth? Okay, there might have been something going on when he was 12. Okay, you know the encounter when he's at the temple? He's a 12-year-old. He's hanging out with like the theologians and pastors of the day. And they're asking him questions, and he's answering them. It's got to be humbling for those old guys. But up to this point, he hadn't known. Up to this point, the hour hadn't come. And um, R.C. Sproul puts it this way. Here in the upper room, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus was staring at the cross. This is in your bulletin. Jesus was staring at the cross. The hour was no longer remote. It was looming right in front of him. The moment planned by the Trinity before all eternity, from all eternity, was presently at hand. Okay, you know the first proclamation of the gospel comes in Genesis 3.15. You know what Genesis 3.15 says? It's a prophetic word of the cross where, the, where it says that the enemy will strike your heel but Jesus will crush his head. It's a prophetic picture of this hour that's coming. And Jesus says, finally, it's here. And then, okay, continue on, because something interesting happens here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Okay, so Jesus asks to be made much of. Jesus asks that he would be glorified. Um, interesting. One theologian puts it this way, when we seek glory, we do it at the expense of the glory of God. So when you and I seek to draw attention to ourselves, uh, here, here's, the, here's the best illustration. So you've ever been sitting in a room, let's picture this as like a big TV, and we're watching a, a game, okay? And I'm trying to get Rick's attention, I'm sitting here, and I'm like, hey Rick, hey Rick, and he's just at the TV, like I do this to my kids all the time, and I'm like, hey, I'm talking to, you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, when we draw the attention, when we try to get the attention for ourselves, what we're doing is we're drawing attention off of the glory of God. Okay? We're saying, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Okay, when we often talk about ourselves, we often talk about what's going on in our world. Okay, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but when it's like, you know, maybe a a sense of often complaining, Okay? In a sense of a pity party or um, whatever that may be, when it's a sense of, here you go, not serving others. You know what that is? It's ultimately drawing attention to yourself and not engaging in the loving service of others. Because when we seek to bring glory to ourselves, we do it at the expense of the glory of God. Um, there's a story in, in the book of Acts as well as in the Gospels where the disciples are doing miracles, 
Okay? Jesus sends them out. They're doing miracles. And what do the people do? They become in awe of what these guys are doing. And they begin to bow down and they begin to worship them. They begin to, like, we're, and, and the disciples stop them and say, no, 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 no. You're missing it. Like, don't, don't worship us. Like, worship Jesus. Okay, so in that moment, they're, they're realizing, okay, we have the chance here to absorb glory or reflect it to who it's due. Because when we seek glory, we do it at the expense of the glory of God. But for Jesus, okay, when he says, God, glorify me. Like, make much of me. Can he do that? Is that, is that okay for him to do? What does Philippians say? Let every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory of God, we talk about making much of God. The means by which God is exalted and made much of is in the lifting up of a crucified son. Okay, so Jesus is hours away from his crucifixion. And he prays this prayer, Father, glorify me, which ultimately is the means by which God is glorified. Okay? Because God, God is lifted up most when his sacrifice through his son is seen to to be proficient and efficient to forgive sin. Okay, so here, Jesus is praying these words, and ultimately what he's doing is he's asking that God would be glorified through putting him on the cross, through him fulfilling his work, through him fulfilling his mission. Okay, because when we glorify God, we do it by working for God. Look at verse 4. What does verse 4 say? I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So Jesus is like, I did all these things. Is that salvation? Doing things for God? Well, on some level, it's part of our salvation. But I love verse 3. Look at verse 3. And this is the eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let me ask you this question. What does it mean to be a Christian? We could probably answer all kinds of different things, right? We'd probably list all kinds of different things. Okay? You know what Jesus teaches us right here? That it's not about a destination, but it's about a person. Okay, what's eternal life? We think of eternal life, what do we think of? heaven. We think of heaven. We think of we're going to go somewhere one day. Jesus says this is eternal life that you know me. It's relationship. It's encounter. It's interaction. This word to know is to learn to know a person through direct personal experience. This continuity of relationship. This intimacy. And that's what Jesus is here in the first five verses of him getting ready to be hours away from enduring the cross, he's intimately praying to his Father, realizing, man, this is my mission. My mission, I'm, I'm nearly completed what you've called me to do. The heart of, we see the heart of Jesus here, that it's about a relationship. It's not about just doing works, okay? Because we can, we can do things, but not have our hearts exposed to a relational God. It's 
So let me ask you this question. What does your intimacy with God look like? Because we see here in a pic, the heart of Jesus exposed, we see him intimately engaging with God. Um, have, you, have you sensed this before? In the longevity of, of life, there's a sense where we can drift. Okay? In the longevity of life, there's a sense where we can begin to, maybe at one point we're fixed on the glory of God. At one point we're fixed on, man, I want to please God. Okay? And in the midst of life and in the midst of all that's going on, we have a tendency where we can begin to lose sight of that and we can begin to seek our own glory. We can begin to pursue things that are more about us than him. We can begin to pursue things that make, draw attention to us over and above attention to him. And our salvation becomes more about just this destination, like I'm saved and I'm going to go to heaven one day. But really, maybe presently, there's very little affection for Christ and interrelational engagement with him. And I think the heart that we see of Jesus here is to, to run to Christ, to repent, to stop going through the motions, to beg God to remove indifference from our hearts, and to get on our face before the Lord. Um, we continue on in verse 6 where we see the heart of a father um, for, for people. Look at verse 6. It says, I've, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So we begin to see here Jesus, this heart for, for his guys, this heart for, so the, the, here, here we, enter, we enter into the prayer of Jesus where his disciples are the audience to prayer about themselves. Okay? And he begins to show this heart and passion for the guys that are sitting around him, the guys that he's been investing in for all this time that he's been modeling the gospel to, he's been teaching, he's been pouring his life into. And one of the things that we see is what? The joy that comes when relational investment makes an impact. Right? Have you experienced that? Okay? Think of someone in your life that you've invested into that you've poured into. And what it's like when you see them changed. What it's like when you see something you taught them, something you poured into them, them begin to live it out. There's few things more encouraging than when I have students that come back. So for five years I taught at a Christian school and Years later, to have them come back and talk about, hey, there's a day in your class you talked about this, and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, like, or I thought you were sleeping every day in class and didn't really care, and, um, and to hear testimony of impact. Okay, Jesus here is exposing his heart and passion for, namely, discipleship, and specifically his disciples, and he's saying, I, I gave them your word, and they're 
they kept it. Were they perfect? No. Okay? But their affections were drawn to you. That's the heart of discipleship. That we're called to invest in the lives of people. We're called to take what we have and give it to others. To put the you, the Jesus in you, in others. That's what Jesus modeled for all of the Gospels. That's what he modeled in making disciples. So here's a question. Who are you pouring into? Listen, every single one of you should be able to name one person. I don't care if you're 10 or 50 or 30. Every single person should be able to name one person, and they might live in your home. Okay? Um, Here's the crazy thing about discipleship is that I think it kind of morphs in different seasons of life. Okay, I think there's, there's seasons of life where, man, you're meeting with people and you're engaging with people like all the time and inviting them into your home and maybe going out to Starbucks and engaging with them and doing projects with them. And, like, and then there's seasons of life where things are busier and kids, kids are it and they're, they're the ones you're focusing on. And maybe they're the disciples um, and all these different aspects. But here's the thing I know about discipleship. Is I think there's two things that it always encompasses. It always encompasses a level of intentionality. Okay, where it's not just like, I'll invest in somebody at some point. You know, go about my day, see who God brings across my path. No, it always, it always brings about a level of intentionality, specific focus, those two things. Intentionality and specific, okay? I love what, how Jesus is specific. He says, I'm not praying for the world. Like, he's like, God, don't get me wrong here. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for these guys you gave me. So who is it that you're being intentional with? Specifically. Right now. We see that with Christ. He models that. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you Holy Father, keep them in your name. When you have spiritual kids, that's your heart and that's your prayer, right? Because no one likes to let go of their investment. Right? No one wants to take something that they poured hours and hours and hours and days and days and days and years and years and years into and then just like see it go. That's hard. Even if that season is hard. Okay? Whether it's like Let's say living in a certain home for however long. You fix it up and you worked on it and you pour time into that and then you give it to somebody else. Do you realize that's really what our life is? Like there's going to come a day where everything we have, everything that we are, we're going to give it away. So Jesus says, just start now. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Okay, so Jesus is like, I mean, I was a spiritual parent to them. Right? I was with them. When you're with them, what do you do? Like, you can protect them. You can guard them. You can be like, what are you doing? Like, you, why are you making that decision? Like, no, you're not going over there. You're staying here. Like, you can really be a spiritual parent, right? Jesus, what is he doing? He's sending them out. 
And you see his heart here because he's like, God, you gotta, you got to take him. you got to take care of him. you got to protect him. I can no longer physically guard them, but you can. Not one of them was lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That's talking about Judas. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have the full that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Um, one, of, one of my favorite prayers um, for physical kids, spiritual kids, is verse 15. So they do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Because as a, as a parent, whether physical or spiritual, where you're reproducing yourself and investing in someone else, what happens? What happens? The tendency is, well, I want to guard them. I want to protect them. I wanna, you're going to keep them here, right? Okay? And we can put spiritual bubble wrap on those that we're investing in to guard them from the world, Right? And how profound is this prayer? He's sending them out. Why? So they can push back what is dark in the world. You don't do that by not engaging in hard things, by not engaging in potentially tempting things and difficult things. You don't do that that way. And what is he saying? He's saying, ultimately, God, I trust you that these are guys that you gave to me. Ultimately, they were yours. I stewarded my time and my invest, my relational investment, investing relational rent into them, and they're yours. So God, as they go engage the world, my prayer is this, keep them from the evil one. It's hard, right? I mean, if you've invested relationally in a person, to just like give them to the Lord? That's what Jesus does. Keep them from the evil one. But then he goes on to talk about how, how, how does that really happen? Verse 16, he says, they, they are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the means by which a disciple effectively engages a dark world is through the renewal of our minds, through the truth that guards us and gives us wisdom to know how to engage. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So he's sending them. Okay, that's, the, that's the nature of discipleship, is you don't invest knowledge and relational investment into someone for them to just stay there. Now, we would love that, right? And some of you are like, I just, at some point, I just want to get my kids out of here, right? And then when they're out, you want them back. 
sometimes. <laughs> okay, and <laughs> he said amen. He was talking about you. Someone back. Totally lost my train of thought. So. Amen. Let's pray. No. Um, so it's the nature of, of sending them out. Like we invest to send out. We invest in people. So our heart as a church should be one that we send people. We're like, well, we're a small church. Like we can't afford to send people. No, that's the gospel is that we invest in people to send people. Okay, that might not come back. Okay, whether it's short term. Okay, like the Reeds who recently started coming here and Larry is in Bolivia and we gathered around him as a church last week and we prayed over him and we sent him out. Okay, or whether it's someone that goes for a long time or maybe goes and starts a new work or starts a new church because the work of the kingdom and the work of the gospel is such that people are sent out in the name of Christ. But here's the crazy thing. The gospel is bigger than just us, right? It's bigger than just us in this room. It's bigger than the disciples. It's bigger, bigger than our lives and what's going on here. And we see that when we engage the last section here in verse 20. It says this, I do not ask for these only. So he begins to engage in prayer for guys other than those that are sitting around him. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Like, how, how optimistic is that? I mean, he's Jesus, right? So he's like, he's kind of prophetic, and he kind of knows what's coming. And, but he's like, I'm sending them out, and there's going to be many people that come to the knowledge of Christ through them. You know what? You and me are a result of the work of the disciples, fulfilling the mission of Christ in proclaiming the kingdom of God to the world such that we sit here today because of what they've done. Okay, so it's this kingdom perspective, okay? Not about my glory or what I've done, but this picture of a lifetime. I had a, a mentor in college, some of you know him, Dr. Tom Hufty. He, he often said these words, I long to touch a day I'll never see. Listen, when I heard that statement, I thought it was absurd. I was like, dude, you're just going to die. Like, what does that even mean? But I stand here and I get it. I long to touch a day that I'll never see. Okay? That, that there'd be so much relational investment. Okay? The disciples are touching a day they've not seen because of their faithfulness in the kingdom of God to invest the gospel so that you and I would come to know the gospel. Okay? Um, so, have you ever had this interesting desire to, like, to be famous? Like, like yes? <laughs> Shared it. I totally missed the comment. Can you say it again? <laughs> Amen. Okay. Hey, we'll bring you up. You want to come up and we'll go get your costume. Um, anyway. Um, 
Okay, this interesting desire to be famous, right? Maybe like be on Biggest Loser or Judge Judy. Okay, no, yeah, neither, neither of those. No one, no one wants to be on those. But maybe Survivor? Like how cool would it be to be on Survivor? Or The Amazing Race? Like, okay, some of you are like, Fear Factor? You remember that show? That show was awesome. <laughs> the show was cool. Especially when they'd eat gnarly things. Okay? Or like, have you ever been on TV? Like, okay, let's be honest, you haven't really been on TV, but you're like, do you see that blue shirt way back in the cool, like, I think that I was sitting three sections over from that guy, <laughs> right? Like, we make a big deal if, like, we're on, because it's like, I'm on TV, like, this is fantastic. Yeah, there's something within us that wants to be known. Like, no one starts a business with the hopes that it doesn't really, like, do very well, Okay? Um, family video isn't thrilled about just sitting back and, you know, letting Redbox run the show. Like, they want to own it, right? Like, they want to be bigger than them, right? Okay? Everyone wants to be Raymond Reddington and own the FBI, right? Everyone wants to wear capris like Hunter Pence, right? Okay? We want to be famous. We want to be known. And now, we could argue the scale to which that is true, but listen, let's go here. You don't post a Facebook or Twitter or MySpace or whatever space, InstaSpace status. <laughs> I just started a new one. You don't, you don't post something with the hopes that no one will see it and no one will comment and no one will like it, right? No. Like, we think of the most creative, like, I had this experience and I want to share it so that everyone will see it and be like, Wow. Right? Okay, no one wants to have the boring status. Okay, unless you're Jeff Brockmeyer talking about the Cardinals. You don't understand what I'm saying? I'll, I'll explain later. Listen, this desire in us, there's aspects of it that can be sinful, right? There's aspects to, like, that desire, but there's aspects to which it's a God-given design and desire because we were made to touch a day we'll never see. God designed us to invest in such a way, not that we'd be on TV and we'd be that guy or we'd be that person, maybe, maybe for some of you, but so that we would impact people all of eternity so we would touch a day that we would never see that's the heart of Christ that's the heart of Jesus in this aspect of discipleship and in this aspect of us having a heart for tomorrow having a heart for the future having a heart for future generations the disciples today are touching a day they've never seen But he begins to zoom in. Look at verse 21. He's praying for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may know that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, just as we are 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as I loved you. So here's what just happened. Jesus just articulated to his Father a picture of what our relational interaction should be. Okay? A picture of, a picture of unity. A picture of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the perfect community, living for the glory of the other, living for the exaltation of the other, serving the other, the perfect community. He's saying, my prayer for the church is that they would be one like us. That they would be unified like us. That the intimacy that we saw in 1 through 5, Jesus is now modeling and praying that that would be true of us. Listen, that we'd be a people that we wouldn't sit in our indifference towards someone that's across the room. We wouldn't sit in our pain or our struggle or our perception, but that we would engage. Okay? That where there's hurt, we would engage. And we'd find reconciliation, and we'd be in conversation, and we wouldn't be divided. Does that mean we always have to agree? Does that mean we always have to be on the same page? Does that mean we always have to say, yes, you, uh, blah, blah, No. But what it means is that we, we live in a forgiving gospel, right? We live in a gospel that says, I'm forgiven. So freely we receive, so freely we give. That's the model. We wouldn't hold grudges against one another. That we wouldn't sit in the room and bottle up something against someone else in our body and not go and engage with it, talk about it, figure it out. Is that easy? No. Are those conversations like letting out a 9,000-pound gorilla in the room? Yeah. Listen, that's... That's the gospel. That's our calling, is that we would be one. That's the prayer that Jesus prayed for us. Romans twelve eighteen says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do you know what that means? It means you work your tail off to the best of your ability, to the best you know how, to be at peace with everyone in your life. Is that always possible? Well, the Bible says it's not. If possible, so far as it depends on you. So you know what that means? You don't sit in your chair and be like, well, they're not doing this, and they're not doing this, and they're not doing this, and they're not doing this. No, like, you go and you engage as much as you can, and you offer forgiveness, and you offer grace, as much as it depends on you. And then you know what? You leave it in God's hands. You leave it in God's hands. That's the calling. That's... The heart of Christ is that we would be a church that lives under the banner of reconciliation and unity and oneness. Because listen, there's no greater gospel witness than people who, when they're wronged, find forgiveness for one another. Because you know what the world says? You wrong me, like I'm done with you, but further than that, I'm not just done with you, I'm coming at you, and you're going down, okay? That's the alternative thinking to the Bible. But in Christ, as creatures who have understood forgiveness, we engage in it. And we find grace in it towards one another. And then Jesus 
wraps it up in 24 when he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. And I love this. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He's like, I've been faithful. So for the hours before going to the cross, Jesus pours out his heart, this humble heart, this passionate heart for the glory of his Father. And he says, in the same way that you're recipients of grace, go and be messengers of grace. Um, Let's pray. And And then ask the Lord to engage our hearts. Jesus, thank you for giving us a glimpse into your heart. Thank you for caring about us. Thank you for when we fail to hear your word. Thank you for persevering it. That you didn't just communicate your word to us once and we didn't care about it, so you just stopped. But as you said to your father, I've gave them my word. And I will continue to give them my word. God, reveal to us areas where our hearts don't look like yours. Where we don't have a heart to invest and disciple. Where we don't have a heart to walk in reconciliation and repentance. Where we don't have deep affections for you, would you move? God, thank you for this morning. In Christ's name, amen.